0: Welcome to the Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota podcast. Safe Passage for Children's mission is to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. This series of episodes will take a closer look at our short weekly policy blog, or e-brief. If you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Stick around for this week's eBrief podcast episode Featuring Safe Passage for Children's Executive Director, Rich Gurman.
1: Are child welfare professionals finally pushing back against criticisms? Last month, a senior fellow from the Child Welfare League of America named Paul DiLorenzo wrote a response to Farrah article in The Imprint about interviewing children in front of their alleged abusers. For the first time that we know of, a child welfare opinion piece has challenged the decades-old progressive oversimplification that child protection workers are typically racist and that child removals from their families are often unnecessary. So why respond after all this time? Well, it's likely in part because child protection workers and professionals are trained to not take personal abuse personally. But the author also hints that some child welfare leaders are starting to lose patience with the attacks on them that lack grace or nuance or even an empirical foundation. And they are also voicing a growing recognition that in our desire to treat parents equitably, we have too often forgotten our duty to protect children. So today's blog and podcast are about an opinion piece written by Paul DiLorenzo in the imprint, which, as you may know, is a daily online news publication that's focused on child welfare and juvenile justice in related fields and which I believe is the only source of its kind. So it's important contributor to the field. De Lorenzo's essay is in response to an article by Farrah Mina, who is the imprints reporter in Minnesota. And Farrah's article covers the recent passage of Maya's Law, which we have covered in other blogs and podcasts, but Maya's laws instituted at least some minimal requirements for interviewing children separately from their alleged abusers in child protection cases. So the writer starts his column with the observation that, and I'm quoting here, the arc of best intentions in child welfare appears to be bending away from child safety. Close quotes. So to be honest, I was tempted to respond to this with a sarcastic, no kidding, because this trend to leave children with or return them to parents despite grave risks started nearly 30 years ago. When Casey Family Programs began to aggressively fund and promote its alternative response practices. And this has grown to the point where we are now regularly willing to leave children in settings that are clearly far too dangerous for their safety, let alone to protect them from trauma and ensure their normal child development. So Dee Lorenzo writes as if he just now recognized this 30 year trend. And, you know, I'm a little skeptical. This doesn't seem likely, given that he's an opinion writer in the child welfare field. What seems more likely is that he, another mainstream child welfare professionals, are just now deciding it's time to push back against what I think is personally an over-the-top, too personalized and hurtful trope that somehow child protection workers and professionals in the field are generally racist, they don't understand the culture's Cultures other than their own, and they're just removing children from black and indigenous families that are really safe and nurturing environments. Of course, there's always enough truth in allegations like these to demand our attention, but it's both an exaggeration and an oversimplification of the systemic problems we face. As we've discussed in other podcasts, data, particularly from the National Incident Study, which is really solid indicates that the poverty that poverty is by far the more important driver of child maltreatment compared to race work, uh, caseworker racism. This doesn't mean that racial bias in decision-making doesn't exist or that we shouldn't deal with it. However, can you really think of any profession, any other profession where people are more concerned about rooting out racial bias in their own thinking than social workers? Virtually all of us have attitudes about people from other backgrounds that we may not recognize readily and which need to be surfaced and dealt with. But the current response in child welfare to this problem is primarily to train people. And for reasons that we discussed in other podcasts, training alone is not likely to have much of an impact on biased decision-making. Because to be effective, training needs to be followed up on immediately, meaning 24 to 48 hours, by knowledgeable supervisors who are prepared to take the time to help workers integrate the learnings from their workshops into their everyday decision-making. And this kind of preparation and, and supervisor readiness doesn't typically happen. And then on top of that, this needs to be supported by a robust, contiguous quality improvement program that's designed to identify where bias occurs in decision-making on a systemic basis or in one unit or in a worker and to address it in real time or something close to real time. In short, the lesson here is that simply accusing fellow professionals of being racist is not going to make improvements along the lines that we desire. So DiLorenzo addresses this near the end of his essay when he says, and I'm quoting, now a fresh assault on our competence and intentions is coming from our own colleagues and advocates. This homegrown disparagement of child welfare is unfair. It has an air of misguided self-loathing about it and about what we do and why we do it, close quotes. Well, it's certainly not a fresh assault. I think he missed the mark there. And I really don't know what he's getting at with this self-loathing part. It sounds a little Freudian to me. But what I think is going on here is that people at the Child Welfare League of America and hopefully other institutions are hurt by and just, you know, maybe just fed up with the rhetoric coming out of progressive organization and activist groups that they have been close to probably since child welfare became a profession, you know, a century or two ago. And I think particularly they're probably responding to the Center for the Study of Social Policy, which is taking... The lead or helping to take the lead in the upend movement, UP Capital E-N-D, which proposes to ch- abolish child protection. Di Lorenzo makes a number of other interesting observations in his article, but understanding them is not straightforward, given his writing style. Here's, exa- here's an example of what I mean, beginning with a phrase we quoted earlier: Quote, "The arc of best intentions in child welfare appears to be bending away from child safety." Our fresh obsessions include rebalancing the scales of social justice and assuring we do no harm to parents. Many of us had been operating under the impression that these were already part of the child welfare equation. Others think we've ignored our responsibilities doing more harm than good, close quotes. Now, to the best of my knowledge, this writing style, which tries to get to the point as indirectly as possible, hasn't really been taught since the 1960s. I fortunately had this beaten out of me in business school where we were required to read a complex case study and produce a written analysis of it within 24 hours and in no more than 1,500 words. But even though I got this harsh lesson in brevity, I can still translate from those who write in the old way. So to unpack this preceding paragraph, I believe what DiLorenzo is trying to say is that we are all making an effort to address systemic racism, or as he puts it, rebalance the scales of social justice by doing everything possible to ensure that we treat parents fairly. He goes on to say that he believes people in the field have already been doing a decent job of balancing the rights and interests of parents with those of children, uh, although others may disagree. So this is simply pushing back against the narrative that the child welfare system doesn't respect parents or take their needs or interests into account. Now Di Lorenzo also raises questions about the quality of interviewing, claiming that most social workers are poorly trained and supervisors and supervised. I'm not sure if that is universally true. I just am not knowledgeable enough to know that, but I do know that Victor Veith and his Zero Abuse Project have been training over 30,000 child welfare workers and other first responders every year for some time. So maybe the state of preparation of social workers has improved during that period. I can't be sure. Uh, Lorenzo goes on to say that if we really want to ensure good practice, Every child should be interviewed at a child advocacy center, which, as you may know, is a site where people are specifically equipped to do forensic interviewing. I believe there are currently eight of them around the state of Minnesota and many others across the country. Or he suggests that if a, a child advocacy center isn't available, children at least be interviewed by someone who's trained in forensic interview, interviewing. He, he must be aware, but he doesn't specifically acknowledge that this is really far from the position taken by most child welfare managers today who subscribe to the alternative response philosophy and, as a result, don't want children interviewed at all prior to and separately from the adults who are allegedly harming them. I wonder if, if this is picked up on by others, he would be subjected to some strong criticism for this point of view. DiLorenzo covers a number of other interesting topics in his article, but if you read it, in some they revolve around three points. First, the current attacks against child welfare professionals are unfair. Secondly, the situations that child protection workers deal with are much more complicated than progressives and political activists are acknowledging. And finally, in our effort to be fair to parents, we've lost track of our duty to protect children. Now, as readers of our blog and listeners to this podcast are aware, these are points we have been making for a number of years. But while it takes a little effort to unpack DiLorenzo's complicated prose... The more important thing to note about his essay is that someone in a position to write opinion articles for national trade newspaper and who is affiliated with a respected institution like the Child Welfare League of America is finally making these points as well and standing up to the dominant narrative. You know, it's nice to have allies in important positions. And so... We hope this is not a one-off article, but that the imprint and the Child Welfare League of America and similar institutions and DiLorenzo will continue to promote these points of view.
0: Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. If you would like to learn more about Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, please visit us on our website at safe Passage for Children. There, you can sign up for our email list, read all of our eBrief blog posts, register for our free bi-monthly webinars, watch our featured videos, and more. You can also follow Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn.